Hello there and welcome to the Racing Home podcast brought to you by Women in Racing and Simply Racing with support from the Racing Foundation and Kindred Group. I'm Naomi Meller, an equine vet and podcast producer, and in this podcast we're talking about work and family. It's challenging being a parent, whoever you are and whatever you do, and it's particularly challenging being a parent when you work in horse racing. It's 24-7, 365 days a year. So how can we best help people manage being both great parents and valued members of the racing family? Following the Racing Home Research Project, in this podcast we'll be exploring ideas around parenthood and career progression and how to do things differently. I'll be talking to trainers, jockeys, physiotherapists and a host of the sport's experts and decision makers about their experiences, their stories and how together we can shape a positive future for all families in horse racing. There's a little bit of housekeeping before we begin today. The website is now up and running and we are extremely excited to have it released into the world. And you can find that at racinghome.org.uk. And as ever, I will pop the link in the show notes. So do just have a look at your phone. There's so much information there and you can also listen to all previous episodes of the podcast there too. We've also had an amazing amount of feedback on the episodes we've put out so far. And I've had some incredible conversations with people in the industry about all manner of things to do with motherhood, work, family and beyond. I've been really touched by how open and honest people have been. One woman expressed her concerns around the menopause to me and the worry about brain fog affecting her performance at work. Another sent me an email after hearing episode two in which we touched on miscarriage to tell me about her experience of having a termination for medical reasons. It's incredible that people are willing to speak about these moments in their lives and to trust us with their stories. It is only by sharing and normalising that we progress. So if you would like to get in touch, then do feel free to send us an email via the website. My guests today are a pair of riding trailblazers. Lizzie Kelly was a national hunt jockey who retired in 2020 after becoming the first female jockey to win a grade one in the UK when winning the Quarto Star Novices Chase at Kempton on T for two. She now works for TalkSport plus a couple of other media outlets, juggling this work with her 17-month-old son Hugo and Valentine Bloodstock, the business she runs with her husband Ed. Dana Meller has, in her words, been economically active for 20 years without ever having a job. She rode out for Jack Berry whilst doing a law degree at university and after finishing her law finals on a Friday, started as an apprentice jockey the following Monday. Dana rode winners in multiple countries including Norway, Sweden, Australia, New Zealand and Japan before returning home. She picks up the story from there. So then I came back to the UK as an injured jockey. I'd, I'd got kicked in, in the ribs and I came back having spent a couple of weeks in Oslo Hospital with broken ribs and a punctured lung um so I came back as an injured jockey and I kind of knew then that I wasn't going to really um get my career back on track because I'd lost my my claim and um yeah I, I knew it was going to be hard to get going over here so while I was off injured I just started doing some voluntary work for the injured jockeys fund uh on a pilot which was called racing employment and that just sort of part-time voluntary work led to the establishment of um, what is known today as the Jockeys Education and Training Scheme. So I worked at what was then called the Jockeys Employment and Training Scheme uh, for 10 years. 
Um, by which time um, my biological clock wasn't ticking. It was just saying, look, it's now or never. Um, so I got married out of racing and uh, had a career out of racing. And it's just recently since 2017, uh, I got a call from Shelley Perham at the National Trainers Federation to ask if I wanted to join them working on the license awards. Uh, so I've been kind of dipping in and out of racing uh, since then. And now I'm doing some work on the Racing Home Project as well. Um, and I've also worked with the British Racing School on the Female Jockeys Mentoring Scheme. So I'm very much working in and out of racing um, and uh, dipping sort of in and out of parenthood now as well, because I've got two teenagers who are miraculously somehow 16 and 18. Lizzie, how old were you when you rode your first race and how old were you when you kind of knew you wanted to be a jockey? Dana alluded there that she got started really at university. What was your passage into kind of professional sports life? So my parents trained racehorses, so I was riding racehorses from a very early age. So by the time I got to 14, 15, uh, I was always going to ride in races. I wasn't entirely sure how far I was going to get, but I started point-to-pointing when I was 16. I was I was sort of in a position where when I finished university, I thought that I didn't really want to stop riding, really stop racing. wasn't ready to, to sort of get into a proper job. And so was actually planning to move to Ireland um, to basically go and follow people like Katie Walsh and Nina Carberry. And then um, my stepdad asked if I wanted to be the yard conditional. So it went from there. I was very lucky, obviously, to have the family connection. But I think that's something that we see in racing quite a lot anyway, because because of the fact that it's uh, it's a lifestyle, really. It's not a job. You know, parents don't come home and just talk about what happened in the office. They talk about what happened on the yard. So you're always um, very involved, um, even if you're not particularly partaking. Uh, so, yeah, I was always... I was always in a very good position to make the most of the opportunities, but I went and worked for a lot of people in sort of summer holidays and things like that. In fact, the list is um is very long from sort of Willie Mullins and Joseph O'Brien's to Henrietta Knight and, and a lot more along the way. So yeah, I've always been sort of thoroughly obsessed with riding in races, I suppose. I think it's a very unique it's a very unique experience because you're not you're not a sprinter who doesn't really have a, ta- a chance to sort of think about anything in that sort of 13, 12, 11 seconds. But also you don't have an hour and a half to plan a strategy. Uh, you, you have probably about seven minutes in, well, in my game. So, yes, uh, it's it's um, that's how I got involved. And uh, I, I was always sort of, yeah, very much wanting to be a jockey. And the jockey's fitness test is uh, notoriously quite difficult to pass. How did you sort of physically train yourself? Obviously, you're riding out plenty at home and for other people as well, and then race riding here and there. How did you kind of physically prep yourself all through your career, really, and particularly when you got to the very high levels of riding at Cheltenham and in grade one races as well? You have a huge amount of fitness anyway. And funnily enough, I sort of have a bit of a a sort of theory where um if you're incredibly fit before you reach puberty you're probably 
your body doesn't particularly stray from that unless you sort of go you know very wild and decide all you're going to eat is hamburgers um I wasn't ever really in a position where I would just turn up and ride out somewhere I I mainly based myself with people that I was with full time and so therefore was required to uh, muck out and all that sort of thing as well as you know then going and riding four or five lots and then potentially going racing in the afternoon I ran a lot that was sort of my way of losing weight I didn't sweat very well in saunas so I used to do a lot of running in sweatsuits instead um so the mileage was pretty high but the the fitness tests are a bit of a strange one really because you kind of have to be very strong obviously to pass them what I find quite interesting about the fitness tests is that as as athletes we carry a lot of injuries um so for example you know press up might be fine if you've got both of your collarbones intact if you haven't that's not not very enjoyable um so they did they kind of they obviously have to have fitness tests and I completely appreciate that they try and make them as jockey friendly as possible but um I would obviously go to the gym before I was sort of required to do a fitness test or something and I would just run through the particular exercises that they ask you to do but they're not something that I would particularly do all the time because I think I struggled with my weight and yes I know that people will try and tell you it's a bit of a myth that going to the gym and doing weights all the time won't affect your weight but for me it did so I was never someone that was going and sort of doing a huge amount of weightlifting or anything like that and um and I would I would still stand by that um and I, as I kind of got later into my career I think that people um you know you'd go to to gyms and they would be expecting you to do things and it was sort of you you knew you were going to struggle to to kind of cut, get your weight back down from from where they were going to leave you really that's really interesting that you say about struggling with your weight because I think there's quite a common misconception that one of the advantages of being a woman jockey is that you won't struggle with your weight and actually you know it's interesting and refreshing to hear people being honest that that is an issue for women jockeys as well and that actually keeping your weight down through running in sweatsuits and watching what you do in the gym and obviously being very mindful about your diet and nutrition as well is something that we definitely have to keep helping people with and not assume that just because women are women that's not going to be an issue for them okay yeah I was probably one of the very few girls that struggled with their weight but and probably the only one that struggled with the weight every day especially National Hunt I know there are a few on the flat that struggle every day with their weight um but National Hunt you know I was the only one and I think the thing that I took out of it was the fact that you couldn't just sit in a sauna and just ditch weight water weight it's not the same for women they struggle to just ditch that couple last pounds so that's where the sweating in sweatsuits and mucking out in a sweatsuit and all that sort of thing came into play for me I kind of had to have a longer term view of what a guy would probably think he could do in an afternoon but of course saunas are gone now and I I gather will certainly not be coming back so Yeah, I think there'll be a lot of change in that department. 
And Dana, how about you? How did you manage all the physicality? Because you were riding on the flat and I know Lizzie is like me, is relatively tall. I, I haven't met you before, so I don't know how tall or short you are. But how did you manage that back in the day when weights were really pretty light, weren't they? So I'm four foot ten. Um, are you? God, yeah, I'm <laughs> right. tiny. Okay. Um, hence the reason why, yeah, I mean, you know, like Lizzie, I, I grew up in a racing family and I was, I, I grew up constantly being passed on the head, being told I would make a jockey. So, you know, that, that was kind of affirmed in me, you know, and riding out by the age of 12, that was kind of very much, you know, part of my DNA. But when I started riding as an apprentice, the minimum weight was seven, seven, I was claiming seven. Um, so I did say straight away, I am not doing seven stone. I just can't even, you know, I've just been sat through, I'd been sat in the law library for hours on hours to get through my degree. Luckily I had actually, um, did have a personal trainer at university, um, that came through a connection through my, my late father had met, um, a guy called Hamish at a, a conference on fitness because he was very into uh, jockey fitness as well as equine fitness and uh so Hamish got in touch with me and said you know you can do some we can do some personal training so that really helped um and I did ride at 7-2 and that was my minimum weight 7-2 uh, I was asked to do seven stone once um to take a ride in the air gold cup and um and I've got a paper clipping actually of Jack Berry saying yes she will do seven stone for the air gold cup and I I remember reading it thinking, I just, I'm going to have to chop a leg off or something. So, <laughs> so I actually remember I weighed out at 7-1, but I, but you know, that's not, I didn't want to weigh out at 7-1 because I wanted to be at my peak fitness and peak strength. Cause then, you, you know, you've got to get on a thoroughbred racehorse and ride it in a big race. Mm. And, you know, he was fancied. And, and so you want to be at your best, not at your lightest. And I totally agree with, with Lizzie about the weight training. You know, to ask me to go into a gym, do weight training, which was going to put on probably five or six pounds, which would have been great. But there's no way I would have been riding at seven two. So, so my riding was by that time. By the time I was doing riding at seven two, I was racing regularly and you know riding out several lots a day. So, so that's how my my I just kept kept fit. Through. And they, I remember, them, you know, a lot of the jockeys at the time would say, you only get fit for race riding by race riding, um, because there wasn't the, the sort of that the the sports coaches and the, and the fitness routines and, and the gyms available. And we were trying to do seven seven, and it was very competitive at seven seven at mm-hmm. that stage. You know, there were, I, you know, I, I was competing against sort of several, well, at least a dozen. Um, you know, lightweight jockeys at the time. So, so you know, you, you had I had to be be mindful of that. And the one thing that I kept um, doing, as well as race riding, as well as riding out, um, was I I started at university again was a yoga class, and um, I started what's called Iyengar yoga, which is a, a a sort of more physical form of of fitness and alignment and. Um, and I've actually kept that going and I still do that today, every morning mm-hmm. today. And that, that's seen me through sort of every part of my career, whether it's been riding or non-riding and racing or non-racing. I, I can't get on with my day now unless I've done my yoga in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been very consistent. I recently heard athlete Jess Varley, who competes for Team GB in modern pentathlon, talking on a podcast about the physical effects that training has on your body, including on your menstrual cycle. 
The effects of intense exercise and the regular use of extreme heat on fertility have been researched previously in both men and women. But again, we don't talk about this that often. Do athletes ever consider the medium to long term impact of the gruelling physical schedule that they're putting their bodies through? Did fertility and family planning ever cross Lizzie Ordainer's minds? Or were they purely just driven by the drive to succeed and a will to win? I think um, I just didn't have time to think about it. I, you know, it was just so full on. I, I was literally just you know, going from one horse to another, one car to another, one racetrack to another. It was only really afterwards that I that I kind of reflected on it and thought about it and thought, well, that probably was pretty tough physically on my body. And actually, 18 months into riding as an apprentice, I had gone because I'd gone straight back to back law degree straight into an apprenticeship. I mean, most of my university friends had taken the rest of the summer off. Um, I hadn't had any time off, and 18 months into it, I really did start to feel it. And physically, I I wasn't in. I, I really struggled to sort of keep my um, my physical health intact. So I was just getting very very tired very quickly, and it kind of looked like I wasn't really trying hard, but I was. Um, and I think you know I was heading for some sort of chronic fatigue syndrome, but um, I I kind of caught it, and I thought I you know, I just can't. Um, let myself sort of go into a some sort of physical decline for this so I mm-hmm. took some time off at towards the end of the um second season that I was riding really just to kind of yeah physically get myself back to where I wanted to be but I had to take time out of riding in order to do that um Lizzie how about you I kind of heard whispers I think from other sports especially around weight loss and always keeping your weight lower than it naturally would be that would have you know negative impacts on your fertility that was something that I did think about much later in my career of course once I'd sort of started getting towards that um point I mean it didn't stop me having to do it and I still um I still did all the wasting and all the dieting and everything but I found that the the later in my career it got more extreme uh lengths I was having to go to to keep my weight down and so that was potentially I suppose compounded the problem um I knew that I was I was sort of heading towards not really being able to do it anymore in terms of my weight but still doing it anyway um and so everything just got a bit more uh well it was it was just madness in the end um you know going sort of it yeah it was just very very difficult dehydrated all the time um and my sister always used to say to me you know as the season goes on you sort of just get more and more gray <laughs> um I sort of you know I just never looked healthy I was always um just way eating and drinking way less than I really needed to but I've sort of always said that you know two of my biggest winners came on days where I was wasting like proper wasting to to do the weight and that is what that is the sacrifice that you make either you want to do it because you want to ride the winners or you don't and for me I kind of I don't know, maybe it's a bit old school, but 
I kind of had a minimum weight, but my minimum weight officially was way lower than I was comfortable with. But that's that's what you're in the game for. You know, I was never built to be a jockey. I was you know, nine and a half stone at 16. Um, it was always going to be a struggle. But yeah, either you want to do it and you're willing to, I suppose, punish your body in order to make it happen or you don't. And it's easy to not do it. You know, there were loads of times when I could have walked away on the bat on the basis that you know my weight just simply can't take this anymore and everyone would have understood because they could all see in the weighing room you know what I was and what a lot of people put themselves through in order to actually survive in this profession um but yeah like I said you know two two big two two of my big winners in the photos there's a very very small very small saddle and the next sort of handkerchief acting as a as a um as a foam pad so you just that's those that's that's what you do it for and you know I I loved it and in a way if I feel I suppose I've stopped now but I feel like I put every ounce of effort into doing something that I probably shouldn't have been trying to do and got away with it so yeah I mean it's just that's just the way it works well I'm not sure getting away with it is I think you you reap the benefits of your efforts Lizzie I think it's probably a bit more <laughs> like it you put a lot of hard grafting and you won some big races because you tried really hard I think it's often only when people retire and you see people looking I mean I hesitate to use the word normal but you know a slightly more healthy that you realize how much people are actually putting their bodies through it's interesting you said earlier Lizzie about women not just being able to sweat out that couple of pounds in this you know not that we have saunas anymore but in the sauna and actually I think taking account of the sort of different physiology of men and women and what your capabilities are of of doing those sorts of things is a really important thing to recognize as we as we go forward I then asked Lizzie and Dana about their transition out of competitive race riding and the end of their riding careers. How much consideration, if any, had they given to having a family and their decisions? And how did they manage their move into the wider world of work? I didn't ever, ever at any point think, oh, this is when I'll have a baby. This is, you know, family planning, for example, was never even crossed my mind. I just knew due to my weight issues that I wasn't going to last forever and there were probably about four times a season when I thought I've had enough of this can't carry on and so I was always really aware of the fact that my career was going to be short just based on that and um, I enjoyed doing stuff in the summer I was very lucky that um, my parents didn't really train summer horses so I was always slightly at a loose end so unless I wanted to spend all summer sort of riding around the roads I was going to have to find something to do with myself in order to in order to get myself off the farm. I set up like little things where I would go and spend some time doing something. And I just did it because I suppose I'm interested in racing as a whole. Uh, I, I loved riding in races, but I was interested in how race courses work. I was interested in you know how how sort of racing post works and stuff like that. So it was all around just basically being interested in in the sport as a whole um you know I'd still maintain that my dream job would actually be 
bit working in marketing for a for a Formula One team. That's that's always been my dream job. So um, I'd sort of always wanted to perhaps you know go down the marketing route a bit when I'd when I'd finished. And also, you have to bear in mind that like even if you retire at thirty five, which would be a very good career for a jump jockey, anyway, you still then got you know forty years left of of a second career and I'm I suppose I'm the sort of person that wanted to be a very successful in the second career not just the first um <clears throat> and so that's what you know I, that's why I did all of those sorts of things um and actually it was nice because you're still working with people that you've probably met before and they know you and you're just sort of you know getting a bit of experience really but um yeah I mean my career ended simply because uh covid happened and racing was cancelled and about a month into the covid sort of situation i found out i was pregnant and that was that was sort of that really there wasn't really um there wasn't any planning it just sort of that's just how it happened it's a funny thing isn't it that sometimes decisions are taken out of your hands in life I'm sure Lizzie wasn't expecting the arrival of a global pandemic followed by a slightly surprised pregnancy to be the circumstances that resulted in the end of her professional riding life. But there we go. What about Dana? Uh, So I was actually, I didn't so much come out of racing. I stayed in racing, but in a non-riding role. So I was with um, the Jockeys Employment and Training Scheme. I was leading that um, for 10 years and actually just sort of going on the back of what Lizzie was saying you know I recognized um when I was sort of in the weighing room that there were people there who did want second careers just like Lizzie had said she wanted to be successful in a second career as well I also recognized there were people there who wanted to move on but didn't know how and you know I heard a lot of things like well all I can do is ride a horse that sort of attitude so when I came out um, and I discovered the Interjockeys Fund were looking to set up something to help uh, retired jockeys back into work, I was thinking already, you know, current jockeys need support as well. Whether they want to stay in racing or whether they want to move out of racing, they need support. And, you know, if they've got um, mortgages to pay and families to look after, um, it's not easy just to stop riding, um, regardless of your gender. You've got to keep the income coming in. So that's when I kind of really got engaged with, um, I ended up sort of sitting in between the Inter Jockeys Fund and the, what's now the PJA to set up not only support for getting retired jockeys into jobs, but also we set up a training scheme so that current jockeys could retrain while they were still riding and they could career plan their careers while they were still riding. And so we, that led to the development of career coaching sessions. So it went from sort of helping people with their CVs to getting them on the right training courses to delivering some really high quality career coaching. So that was kind of a 10 year journey for Jets and for myself. And at the same time, like I said before, you know, I, I was I kind of just looked up for the first time in almost 10 years and I said, well, you know, it is now or never. You know, again, there was no sort of not much planning around it. But I did think, you know, this is now or never. If I'm going to have my own family. So uh, within the next year, I 
left Jets and, and Lisa Delaney was recruited and she's still there, which is amazing. Um, she's done really well to, to, to continue the work. Um, and I got married. I moved house. I found another job um, and had our first child all within 12 months of that decision. And, and, that, and that's I think the hardest part of that was actually the decision to hand over jets because that was like giving away my first child you know mm-hmm. I had cre- I was there from day one and I developed that over 10 years so so but I but I very much wanted to leave it in good hands and I wanted it to be sustainable and thrive the way it has done so so that was a, a bit of a roller coaster of, of a year um you know changing changing career and and moving house and getting married and you know there I am suddenly as a working mum um the injured jockeys fund offered me some part-time work as a job share with um another parent they were a bit overwhelmed the liaison team were a bit overwhelmed in my geographical area so I was when I I actually had my first son I was doing a job share with another mum of four and that worked really well um because she was um you know very capable of doing her job with as a mum but you know needed some support I was uh, quite heavily pregnant when I started the job and we were just kind of able to support each other uh, and that and that worked really well and I wasn't going to stay there too long but I ended up going back quite quickly after the birth of my first son and I stayed there until I was pregnant with my second so the Interjockey Fund actually saw me through two pregnancies mm. um, which was fantastic and I have to say that, that by the time I was pregnant for the second time I because I'd been there two years I was um eligible for the maternity support and I had letters being written to me you know, explaining what the maternity pay and everything which was so different from the first time around when it was just me hmm. um me sort of embracing the challenge and digging deep to um manage that transition by myself so so I you know I had the sort of the the, the compact the, the the two different scenarios to compare and yeah, the, the second time around was, you know, m- uh, much more supported and, and and much easier for me. And just on that point, Lizzie, obviously, since you've had Hugo, you you and your husband are running your own bloodstock company, as well as obviously doing kind of media work with TalkSport. You haven't got a month to month paycheck from an employer per se like that with, you know, enhanced maternity pay and everything that Dana's just been talking about. How have you kind of managed that as, I guess, an entrepreneur, really, you know, your business owner, a new business owner as well how have you navigated all of that since having your son as well um I think I was probably incredibly lucky and in the right place at the right time for the talk sport work which kind of happened very organically I ended up doing something for a documentary they were doing and then they sort of wanted a bit more and then uh Rupert Bell and I sort of went forward from the Charlton Festival which we covered together and and then you know went through the whole season together and now I'm sort of in my second year of working for Talk Sport I don't really know where I would sort of be without talk sport if if I'm honest um I do bits and pieces for a few other other sort of people but um and I still ride out you know I still ride out uh every day um and I ride out for someone else two days a week as well and then come back and do my own afterwards um 
so it's, it is very full on and we we're lucky that you know hugo's got um care at, at the local nursery at two days a week and all that sort of thing but it's a lot of juggling um obviously once i'd once i found out i was pregnant that was quite complicated you know with the maternity being self-employed and um obviously as a you know you don't get a maternity package you know you just get what the government will give you um so that's all quite you know difficult to manage really um and yeah i mean the i think that that's something that i would like to sort of potentially see further down the line uh with more and more female jockeys now i think there needs to be some some sort of thought process about you know maternity and and, and also the stages of which you know female jockeys need to stop riding and all that sort of thing when they could potentially come back to riding certainly a conversation for the industry um but yeah i mean i'm i'm sort of very lucky uh we've got family sort of all over the place so when I was covering these big meetings for talk sport, you know, I was taking Hugo with me, um, and, um, dropping him off at the sort of most local family members house and then having to, thankfully COVID was happening. So there was no crowds. So I remember doing entry and I was driving, I was driving to and from Worcester, uh, every day to obviously stay with Hugo overnight because oh he would have been yeah I know it's madness he would have been about um six months like seven months uh by that point so yeah I was leaving him with my auntie in the day and then driving up to Aintree doing my day's work driving back down to Worcester um yeah so it was all you know it was all a bit mad really but I think um just got on with it you know and just tried to just try to make the best of it that we could really God, that's amazing, Lizzie. It's, and well, thank you for talking about that because it's it's kind of when you hear these stories, I think it's helpful for other people to know what people are doing, like how you manage, because it can seem, particularly when you're kind of in the glamour of, you know, Aintree and I saw you at Cheltenham this year and looking amazing and doing bits and pieces and things. And it's it seems effortless, but it's never effortless. You know, it's bloody hard work. And <laughs> there's always a sort of village around you of people helping most of the time in order to facilitate doing these kinds of things and having both an amazing working life and being a mum as well, you know, but I think it's, it's refreshing to hear you kind of talk about what you put in to get what you get out really. I was sort of landed on my feet really with the job from TalkSport. Um, but I still remember like I breastfed Hugo and I was still breastfeeding him. So I was still having to like nip off to the loo and use my breast pump. And like Rupert Bell would say, oh, God, are you off to sort of do the milking? And it was just great because he was so understanding and just made me feel at ease. And I think sometimes you can kind of get this thing where you have to look like you're managing and you know a lot of the time you're sort of not really managing you're you you just think how is this all how am I managing to get from like day to day when this is our lifestyle I mean even now you know we get up super early to do the horses before Hugo even wakes up so by nine o'clock when he might, he's a really late sleeper, which is amazing. But by nine o'clock, like 
he's sort of just about starting to wake up and we're done. And then in the evening, sometimes we do the same. If he's, you know, if it's wet and cold, he would do the horses when he goes to bed. And it's all, you know, it's a sort of bit of a, a, a sort of, well, it's, it's mad really, but you just kind of, yeah, I certainly would uh, would say that sometimes you get a bit worried that you need to portray that you're kind of finding it all very easy. Um, and actually, you know, it's, it's, it's really not easy at all. <laughs> no, no, it, de- it definitely doesn't sound like it. Um, and uh, yeah, but it's but it's, it's lovely to hear that Rupert's very supportive like that because actually it's only by kind of men as allies coming along with you and being understanding about those kinds of things, you know, like going to use a breast pump, for example, that actually it normalizes everything, just makes that a very day-to-day conversation where that is fine. Having those people to be like, oh yeah, go Lizzie, just do what you need to do. It makes your life and other people's that come along behind you easier, I think. And I, I, I don't think that the importance of kind of allyship from other people in the workplace can really be overestimated in terms of helping everybody improve this is something as as females we kind of tend to underestimate ourselves sometimes um lizzie said she she said a couple of times she's been incredibly lucky and she has there's no doubt but lizzie picked up the work because she'd done the preparation because she thought about it ahead and she'd gone out of her way to as you said do that reach out and get that work get that experience before she retired and also Lizzie said a couple of times that you know she just gets on with it she just digs deep and I think you know as females sometimes we just say oh we were just lucky but actually no one we're digging deep Mm -hmm. and two we're doing we're thinking ahead and doing the preparation Mm -hmm. I think it's very easy to just say, oh, we were lucky, you know, we just got lucky. I could say I just got lucky because the interjockeys fund offered me some work when I needed it. But, you know, it's it's because I had worked alongside the interjockeys fund for 10 years that they trusted me to take on that work. Mm. So I think that's one point worth making. I would really echo that. Like, Lizzie, I don't think you're lucky. I think you've worked really hard and you're really good. And that's why <laughs> you've got a job because you're good, you know, and actually you get jobs like that because you're good at what you do. And you don't get that job at all sport by not putting in, in the, the effort, the work and the preparation and putting yourself out there and getting things going. Dana, just off the back of what Lizzie was saying there about getting women back riding, you mentioned about doing the female jockeys mentoring. And I am in awe of people like Serena Williams, who has had a baby and come back to be competing at the highest level. I think it's just incredible. Where are we up to with things like that? So uh, the systems aren't in place. They, they do need to be put in place. Um, because uh, the there's a shift from the percentage of um, females get, get entering into racing through the racing schools. I think there's a um, nearly seventy percent of racing school intakes now across the, the, all the racing schools. Seventy um, percent female, thirty percent male, and that's a huge shift. I mean, when I was in racing, it was more sort of eighty twenty in favour of males. So um, if those women are going to be retained and a lot of them are riding riding regularly riding winners they are you know they have a career they are earning uh, a living long term a serious earning a serious living out, out of racing um so yes the, the systems do need to 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 now be in place and and i think um you know the project for example you know the racing home project is at least starting these conversations now and putting the best practice out there the work I've done with the licensed trainers 
um, suggests that you know there is some really good practice out there to support parents back into the workplace. And I think it's just that attitude of actually, do you know what we want to retain these uh, these females? We want to we, we want to get them back to work. We want to get them back to riding. And it's almost like where there's a will, there's a way. Um, and and so I think you know, p- providing there's the political will there, um, then then ways ways will be found. And I, and I think racing is ready for it. And I think the the females riding today are ready ready for that. Mm. Women like Kim Tinkler, whose career took off after the birth of her children, and Kathy Gannon, who continued riding after becoming a mother, are good examples that it can be done. As Dana says, racing is ready. Jess Ennis returned to win an Olympic medal after her son was born, and we should open the door for a woman jockey to do the same in the not-so-distant future. As ever, I asked Dana and Lizzie if they had anything to finally add before they wrapped up. So I think, you know, when we're talking about sort of putting support in place, I think, you know, the the difference for me um, when I went um, on maternity leave the first time and and the second time, the difference for me was that the second time I had someone to talk to. Mm. You know, there was somebody there who was open and engaging and actually said to me, then you can have as many children as you like. We don't care as long as you get this work done compared to what I felt the first time around was, well, Dana's going to get married and have children. We'll never hear from her again. Um, So the the difference between just that, having somebody on side, um, having those open conversations, uh, having someone actually believe in me, um mm. instead of saying well you know you're going to get married have children and of course you can't do this job while you do while you when you're doing that um and someone saying well you know as long as you get the work done it's going to be fine it, actually yeah that makes it possible <laughs> um so i think just having somebody on side somebody who believes in you um really really yeah that made more of a dis- difference than the maternity pay quite honestly I think that's really interesting that you raised that because I think one of the communication is so um, key, isn't it? And I think especially when uh, you're sort of uh, like my child was fairly sort of unexpected, really. We'd we'd sort of not really expected um, him to come along quite as quickly as he did for various reasons. And I was sort of thrust into this um, position where I had all of a sudden become unemployed from a job that I loved doing um, and was my entire life uh, to it sort of being over essentially uh, overnight and there was nobody that I could speak to that or who reached out and said oh you know this has happened to me you know we this is what you know you sort of coping okay um especially when we talk about mental health and postnatal depression and prenatal depression and I'm very lucky that I had a very good sort of family unit around me but I sort of look at some of my old colleagues in the weighing room and think you know how would they feel um how you know could 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 there be someone in place who you know speaks to female jockeys who you know who might have felt the same that I felt you know that their whole entire sort of career had gone and everything they'd worked for had gone and all of a sudden you know they're going to have to try and find something new to do with their lives and I think that there needs to be far more communication with um, female jockeys when that does happen because 
it was a very big eye-opener for me and, well, very much a culture shock. Um, so, yeah, I'd love to see um, something put in place where there's a bit more of um, of communication with, you know, female jockeys when, when they do fall pregnant. Can I, I, I would just echo that as well because, um, you know, the one-to-one support is so important because we are all unique and all our babies, every baby is unique. You know, no, no one baby is the same. No one toddler is the same. No one teenager is the same. So I think the one-to-one support on top of the more generic um, policies out there yeah, is, mm. is essential. The really good news is that there are plans afoot for individual assessment and planning for pregnant women in the horse racing industry. And we will be covering that in a lot more detail in a later episode. So watch this space. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to follow the podcast to receive all new episodes as they land. It would really help us if you could rate the podcast and leave a review telling us what you'd like to hear about. This is a resource for you and everyone in the industry, and we'd love to hear from you. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, so see you then.